Hey, sports fans, you might notice my voice is a little bit scratchy in a couple of parts of the pod today. I'm coming back from Summer League, and let's just say I was trying to talk serious hoops in a very loud club. Hence, I sound like Harvey Firestein. Don't worry, most of this pod was recorded a month ago, so my voice will be mostly its normal, smooth self. Who invented the jump shot? How did it evolve? Will the three-pointer forever change the game going forward? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today I am extremely pleased to bring on Sean Fury who is a freelance writer and a Minnesotan, and now lives in New York, but is author of a book called Rise and Fire, The Origins, Science, and Evolution of the Jump Shot and How It Transformed Basketball Forever. So I might be hard for you guys to understand why I brought Sean on here <laughs> with a title like that, but Sean, thank you for coming on. We're here to talk about your book and shooting in general. So what do you say? I'm very excited to talk to you. I've I always enjoy your insights online about hoops in general, but obviously, uh, anytime you talk about the jump shot in particular, my uh, ears perk up. <laughs> All right. Well, I, it's always great to see you out there on Twitter joining in because, uh, you know, if, if there's anybody who's looked at it more than I have, I suppose it's you. It sounds like after going through your, your awesome book, which everyone should definitely check out, I'm assuming it's downloadable as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, bookstores, online, Amazon, um, and then Kindle, obviously, another. Um, online downloads for sure although there's this i have it in you know i have it in my hand there's just nothing like a real book uh to have in the bathroom for you so you know anywhere any way you can get it you got to go through it but basically what you did was uh, for those who are curious is you kind of went through the, the the history and you spotlit certain players i think that a lot of them who probably were completely unknown to most people including me um who were the progenitors of the jump shot and I think, you know, can you help us, you know, trace it back to what you ended up finding uh, of who you think might end up being like the sort of the father of the jump shot? Yeah, that, that was, you know, probably one of the more fascinating parts of the book when anytime you dig back into that kind of old type of history and research is a lot of fun. Um, so when I started, I really I had heard of guys maybe like Hank Lucetti, um, Kenny Sailors, I had vaguely heard of but really didn't know much about his career um, or what he accomplished so when I started looking back through these older guys and I would look through old newspapers and I'd literally be doing searches for you know the 1930s of just a phrase jump shot see if uh, anything would pop up and I eventually found this group of guys um, I don't know if you could, there's really not one guy that you can say he invented it on you know May 4th 1936 mostly because the media back then Obviously, nothing like it was now, to say the least. So a lot of these guys were shooting in different parts of the country, whether it was Kenny in Wyoming. You had guys, uh, John Cooper, a great player in Missouri in the mid-1930s. You had players in Virginia, Kentucky, all scattered around the country, but none of them knew about each other. And so the media at the time, too, especially if they were at a smaller school, they might write about these guys' exploits. And they might talk about their spinning jump shot in the lane mm -hmm. or use a phrase like that. But no one knew that someone else in a different part of the country might be doing it. So I think you kind of have this group of guys like Kenny Sailors, who's from Wyoming, um, eventually led Wyoming to the 1943 national title. 
then you also have um, players, like I mentioned, John Cooper, a really good player at Missouri um, in the mid-30s who averaged double figures, which today sounds like nothing, but back then, center jump after every basket, um, that was really something. Uh, Glenn Roberts, a player from a small school in Virginia, who he averaged nearly 20 a game in that same era. And the Basketball Hall of Fame um, sort of credits him with being an early jump shot shooter, while also not you know, saying specifically he's the guy. Um, so there's this whole group of players, Joe Falks, an early um, NBA star with his scoring exploits. Another one of those guys who shot sort of a twisting, spinning jump shot. Yeah, jumping um, Joe. Yeah, exactly. And they all that was the great thing, too. They all inevitably were nicknamed Jumping. Um, <laughs> not the most creative nicknames that they came up with back then, but reporters and fans saw all these guys leaving the floor, which just wasn't done back then. Um, and that was another thing that I just was fascinated by, that it seemed like such an obvious motion for someone to do, um, jump over your defender and shoot, but it took 40, 50 years for this to become um, an accepted part of the play. So you have all these early guys, um, but going back to Kenny Sailors, he's kind of been called the father of the modern jump shot because his jumper looked s- sort of similar to what we see today with his form, the way he jumped off the court, shot it one-handed, mm-hmm. sort of had a guide hand next to the ball. Um, so he's a guy who the last 15, 20 years has gotten a lot of credit as well. For sure, and when you you have pictures in the book of him shooting, uh, and there's there's sort of beautiful freeze frames of right at the apex yeah. of his jump, and you're right, it looks just like you know, for almost exactly like what it would look now. And in look, what you had said, I think that the the origin of the jump shot sounds like it was little runts, little young people who yeah. could not get the shot off against their older brother, whoever in the driveway, uh, and they had to resort to jumping. Uh, and you know it, it's just it is just interesting, interesting because the game was invented in 1892, uh, right? 1892. Uh, I, by uh, the way, 1891. 1891 in December, like you know, in the in the in the winter. And um, I used to have total recall by way of all the history, and I, my mind is fading. But um, you know, it takes until like I think the 30s seemed to be when this this notion started to happen. So you're talking about you know a good you know almost 40 years before we kind of started to see any normal thing doing. And I find that interesting to find out, like to, to, to look at why it would have taken that long. Do you think it's a, maybe a function of the society in general back then? Yeah, definitely. And there's a really good book um, by a writer called John Criscow, and he documented, um, the eight, I think he had eight early jump shooters. And his stories were all about how a lot of these guys, they were kind of almost rebelling against society um, in a way, which you know sounds kind of strange for a basketball move, but... It, it, part of it was also just from the time you know Naismith invented it through the 30s, 40s, coaches, instructors around the country, you know, told players to play a very specific way, um, and that was you know players really followed orders and they wouldn't deviate from that. And then you would have these guys who usually, like you said, by necessity, whether it was Kenny going against his older brother or some guy in a lane going against bigger players who were like, oh, if I jump, it helps me. Um, they started realizing they might have a weapon here. And those early guys, as I write about, a lot of them, their coaches would tell them not to do it. They would threaten them with benching. Um, so those guys really did have to buck, you know, convent, basketball conventions at the time. And also just general society at the time where, you know, there was kind of this, you follow the rules and that's what you do. Um, and if you don't, you're not going to play. So I think you, you really have to give a lot of those early guys a lot of credit for that too, for just basically sticking with it. 
For sure. And I also think that uh, people are probably asking, well, what did they do before they jumped in the air to shoot a jump shot? So, you know, obviously, like, the, you know, the two-handed set shot was yeah. sort of the norm. And that's going to that's gonna transition us to, you know, some of the fundamentals of the, of the shot. But, uh, it, you know, did you get a chance to go through a lot of footage from the, ten, the teens and the 20s and see a lot of the, how they used to propel the ball to the basket? A little bit. And there's, I think it's Illinois that their state high school league has done a remarkable job. They put up all these old state tournament games from way, way back when. And you'll see these games in the 30s. And these guys, I mean, the good thing was you could shoot from, I mean, these guys were launching from 30, 35 feet with that two-handed push, you know, maybe lifting a leg, firing it up. Um, So it was a game where you had to pass it around to get a guy who could be open enough to shoot that long shot. Um, And the jumper, of course, sort of enabled an individual to kind of start dominating a little bit because he could just rise up over someone instead of having to be so open. Um, So some of that early footage, you know, is just so fun to watch because it is a completely foreign game, Mm. obviously, to what we know today. But without those guys, without that evolution of the game, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today. So I think that's what is a fun thing, too, is that, it seems like such a different, totally different sport, but that's the great thing about basketball is that it's always changing. And I think if you appreciate what those early guys did, it helps you in some ways even appreciate what they do today when they're rising off the court, you know, 20, 30 inches for their jumpers. Well, there's, there's nothing I like better than watching old footage like that and recognizing things that are still applicable today. And that yeah. is almost, it's almost like what religion kind of brings to us, right? Like you do some sort of ritual that, you know, whatever religion you are, and you kind of feel this connection to people that were doing the exact same thing thousands of years ago. Yeah. And it almost feels the same to me, which is sort of why I gravitate toward the triangle, because you can watch from the 60s and you still see, and I got to do a video on this where I'll show you Tex Winter's triangle offense in the K-State, and then I'll, I'll cut to a direct movement that the Warriors are running now, yeah. you know? And, it, of course, there's extra, you know, fancy dribbling, and then shooting is better yeah. for, you know, back then. But it's still, there are some universal truths to some degree. And so that's sort of what I want to talk to you about as well, because, you know, having studied the jump shot and, and, and gone through in so in-depth on the mechanics and the history of it, you know, I'm kind of curious your thoughts because for me, I am convinced and I don't, my, my journey is not unceasing to discover the universal truths of the jump shot. And I understand everyone's different, you know, mechanics or whatever, but do you feel like you've stumbled upon some, some truths here that everyone kind of follows for successful jump shots? Uh, as far as, me- as far as mechanics? Yeah, well, yeah, mechanics. Um, yeah, you know, that's, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And one of the things as I was writing this book and I would do all this research and also talk to, you know, so many coaches and instructors, and I still, you know, like to play ball myself. And one of the problems is I would have all these different, you know, I've had my same jump shot for 30 years that I've played, but you talk to these people, these experts um, that know about the, the basics of the jump shot down to every last detail, and those things would get in my head. And I'd be in my Wednesday night game, you know, altering my mechanics a little bit, trying to think, oh, if my, my feet go forward, that'll help. Or, mm-hmm. you know, where's where's my guide hand? Um, so I, I don't know if I've found one universal truth, but I, I feel like definitely, you know, you talk to all these guys. I, I think they all, you think, you talk about the elbow, I think, if that's the cocked elbow. Um, I'm sure you probably know there's maybe some guys here and there that have had their elbow jutting out that could make a jump shot. But that seems like a very basic thing that everyone has to have um i think now you talk about as the game has evolved 
and you have, you know, with as defense has improved, I think that is also changing how the jump shot is just, you know, shot. And you know what else has improved over the years? Razors. And that's where Harry's comes in. Two guys named Jeff and Andy did something kind of crazy. Fed up with expensive and crappy razors, they bought a German factory with over 100 years of blade-making experience. I use Harry's razors, and let me tell you, it's the best shave I've had. As smooth as a through-the-leg step-back three-point swish. My favorite part is the balance of their handle, making it really easy to get a close shave. You can have their razors delivered right to your door. No more having to ask the clerk at the drugstore to open up the case since I guess there's some sort of black market for those crappy five-blade razors you see everywhere. And Harry's razors are half the price. And best of all, claim your free trial offer today, which comes with their ergonomic handle, five precision engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. All you need is to take care of the shipping cost. So visit harrys.com slash coachnick to get your free trial offer and experience the best shave you've ever had. That's harrys.com slash coachnick and begin a life of shaving fulfillment. You know, one thing that's kind of changed is, especially from the past, is I guess the one motion. I feel like that's really becoming maybe not a total universal truth because you still definitely have guys. Um, you know, I think just Kobe most recently, I think, you know, was a little different from the Curries, the Hardens. Um, I think it's interesting that that's kind of, you would maybe speak better to that than me, where I feel like back in the day, someone shooting a one motion shot maybe would be told to shoot it differently, where now it's kind of evolved to where that is probably becoming more of um, an accepted jump shot wisdom. Um, obviously, it's still exceptions to all this. Um, so I think there's certain you know mechanics as far as the form, um, you know, where the ball is going to be, whether it's above your head or Steph Curry, you know, kind of breaks that mold. So I don't know if there is one universal thing, but it seems like when you see a great shooter, it's almost like within watching him shoot five shots, you can tell yourself like, oh, that guy's a good shooter. And I, I don't know if it's just the total package or if it's the smoothness that they have. Um, so there might be people out there who aren't exactly clear what one motion shooting is. And so, and there's a lot of different uh, definitions and it, it's kind of maddening to me in the beginning because it, I just couldn't see exactly what the difference was. Cause sometimes yeah. people will say, um, people will say, uh, you know, it's, it's when you release the ball over your head, kind of like Kobe would mm -hmm. do. And so that would be mm -hmm. a one, two release. Uh, some people say that they, you hang in the air, that's sort of a two mm -hmm. motion shot. And those are all sort of the similar ideas. And, you know, you watch like Steph and Harden. To me, it almost feels like the one motion shot is A, like on your way up before you get to the top of your mm. jump. Or B, the ball stays in front of your face the whole time. I think those are like sort of two ways to describe it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of like, you know, if you're throwing darts, you don't pull the dart back behind your eye before you release it, right? It mm -hmm. stays in front the whole time. Uh, bowling, well, bowling, you bring it back. Uh, you know, but it certainly, you know, the idea is, is it may, seems to make sense because, you know, the, the biggest thing I think for shooting is it has to be straight, right? I think like that might be one yeah. of the other truths that you might discover was that it could be long, could be short, but good shooters yeah. are always straight, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, you know, I talk to coaches and they say, if you see a guy and, again, another thing that got in my head as I was shooting because if I shoot one to the side, I'm like, oh my God, my mechanics are awful. That's what all the coaches say. Like you have to be short or long 
Um, so that that's definitely a good one. And when I watch a game now, that's something I really you know you notice if how guys are missing. It just kind of adds an element to the viewing. Right. And also, you know, like, and I say this on, on Twitter a lot, you know, good shooters, when they miss, almost always, it's like in and out, you know, and it's mm-hmm. straight. But, like, you can judge a shooter sometimes by the, by the quality of their misses. And if, like, it slams off the backboard or it's just, you know, it's completely off, you know, because some guys can get to average, you know, maybe slightly above average from three-point land, for instance. But, yeah. but some of those guys, when you watch their misses, it's, it's like you, you got to have a hard hat on. And uh, to me, that, that doesn't indicate that they're good shooters. Now, I think the other question we have to talk about then is, is the notion of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, stability or uh, consistency. You know, mm. you have guys that with bad mechanics, they might be able to make four in a row and then they'll miss 10 in a row yeah. or 12 in a row. And so you have like a decent percentage, but it's not what you'd want to rely on as a coach. So did that come up at all in your research or talking about like consistency? Yeah, it did. I'm trying to, there was a guy, um, I write about him briefly in the book, and he, he's coached a little bit, but mostly he, he does traveling exhibitions. Archie Talley is his name, and he averaged 40 a game back in the NAIA, back in the 70s. And there's these stories you read, you know, he's, and you ever know these old newspaper stories, how much there's exaggeration, but people would talk about the distances that he shot from, um, and he says that too today. Hmm. But he, I, he would talk about guys watching... You know, he used to say he could go watch someone in the gym, and he could see. He would just judge by how you know where their wrist was, how they shot, the follow through, and he would say he would tell his friend, you know, yeah, that guy just made five in a row, but he's not going to be a good shooter. And then eventually he would be proven right, just because he could see that at the fundamental level there was something that's just not going to carry you through game after game, week after week. Um, and I think that 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 is a really interesting thing because. You know, every year you, you look at the you know leaders and shooting percentages from you know obviously now three pointers. It's the same names. You know, every year you just have those guys that, on the other hand, they might go through a slump. You know, obviously Curry this year is a little bit down, but you just know eventually just because they are just so fundamentally sound and they develop that shot you know over the years to look you know so perfect basically that eventually it's going to come around and they're going to be good. And conversely, if you have a guy who you might have a good one week streak or a two week streak, but if there's just something off about the way he's shooting, eventually it's going to catch up with him or defenses are going to catch up with him more. So that's definitely something that I think a lot of coaches talk about and also is interesting. A lot of players themselves um, kind of judging other players talk about, too. Well, you know, I also think we've all, we've kind of mastered the idea of like you know, there's form shooting. There's also game like situations, and I feel like back in the day, you go to the gym and you'd shoot you know 500 shots, but there was never mm-hmm. any kind of notion of what type of shot you'd be shooting, and would you try and do catch and shoots, or are you just dribbling around and shooting? Are you trying to move to a spot like you would in a game, or are you just sort of standing yeah. around shooting over and over again? And so I feel like, you know, when you watch Steph Curry, for instance, he does do that form of shooting. He's just in one spot, and he's passed to a nice, easy pass. No one's guarding him. He's not in a hurry. Uh, and he does that. Um, and then, then he'll do the other things where it's not as public, where he's doing the crazy, you know, simulating game stuff as well, where it's a real lather he's building to do it. So, but I feel like, you know, this is more recent, right, where, where guys are actually training to, to shoot game-like situations in practice. Yeah, and that that's another great point. And you know, even when I was a younger player, I don't think coaches drilled that into us. 
um, like they would today. And part of that's just how the game has evolved. And there's just so much coaching and training. And for me, a part, you know, part of me, and I write about this briefly in the book, um, just as a guy who likes kind of weird things, part of me misses that, you know, say in the eighties, you could have guys with really different shooting forms, kind of quirky shots. Um, obviously like Jamal Wilkes comes to mind, but you know, even someone like Bernard King with his, you know, little quick shot where with the development of the three pointer today, you need, you really can't have those quirky forms and expect to advance too far because eventually you're going to have to be making those shots from 20 feet and your form has to be a certain way. Um, so part of me kind of regrets that the game has evolved to that point because you miss out on some of that fun, you know, different stuff. But at the same time, that's you know just how the game has evolved. And players today, um, they they realize what they need to do to be successful. And part of that, it's not just what happens in the games. It's like you said, what happens in practice. And it's not just going down to the park and you know shooting for two hours. You have to be working hard. It's it's kind of like the old cliche. Um, you play like you practice. But today it's, you know, you have to be shooting like you will be in the game. Um, and I think that's that's something that's definitely changed, I'd say, in the last 10, 15 years maybe. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the other thing I, I thought was interesting in the book that comes up briefly is, you know, in a lot of other sports, you, people analyze the greats and they break down their form of their golf swing or whatever, mm-hmm. or the tennis swing, and then they emulate that. These are what the guys are doing. I want to serve like Pete Sampras or I want to have a stroke yeah. like Jack Nicklaus. And it does seem a bit unique to basketball that there is this sort of resistance to that saying, oh, well, the only person that can shoot that way is Seth Curry. We can't emulate that. And, uh, you know, growing up, my parents were big tennis players and I kind of never really wanted to play. But certainly I did take lessons. And I even in my adult life, I kind of really focused on tennis. And that's all they do is they teach the stuff and they see what they're doing and they evolve it and they change it depending on, you know, the Mm -hmm. racket, whatever. But and the same with golf. And yet, um, you know, there, it's this really strange thing, right, where you, people are talking about, oh, you couldn't, you, you know, those guys are pros. You shouldn't do that, yeah. even though that seems to be the way that you should be teaching it. Yeah, and I think part of it, too, is good and bad. There's kind of this mythical thing around the idea of the jump shot still, maybe because it is such as in a way, it is still an individual pursuit because you have to make yourself on your own into a great shooter. So there's kind of this, you know, mythical belief around it that, you know, whatever you do, you know, maybe you're born with it. Um, kind of the old question, can you turn a, you know, make someone into a great shooter or you're just born with it? And I think a lot of coaches, especially kind of, some of them might fall into that, but a lot of them rebel against that and want to think, well, well you know, no, you can, you can help someone, you can teach them. And if you're going to teach them, why not teach them the way a great shooter shoots? Um, instead of just saying, oh, you've been shooting that way since you're 12. Let's just try to work on that. Um, to me, it does. It's kind of common sense that yeah, you should be, you know, teaching guys to do it the way the best do. It's just it's kind of every avenue of life is like that. Um, and I think the jumpers just for whatever reason is a little bit different. Um, but I think that's probably changing too. And maybe in 20 years, um, it will be more accepted wisdom to, especially with the video abilities we have now, where you know, like yourself, you can tweet something 10 seconds after it happens and have a breakdown of what this guy is doing. So there's just so much more information and that players have access to and coaches that maybe they will start incorporating that more, you know, into their training. And again, it kind of goes back to eventually maybe everyone will start, sh- will be shooting the same shot. And, you know, whether that, that'll be good for shooting percentages um, for me who likes quirky form, it might not be as good. Right. 
Well, yeah, I mean, like, all you have to do is go go online and, and on YouTube and search for Bill Cartwright, and if you want to see form, uh, you know. But by the way, he could make that 15 to 17 yeah. foot jump shot on the baseline, like he figured it out. And I think that's the other key about shooting that we've sort of developed is, you know, the more I'm trying to find universal truths, the less I'm actually. Uh, obsessed with all the little details of the elbow and the arm and the wrist. I used to torture my players by yanking and pulling and stretching. And I think the, one of the points we've learned, especially with the, the 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 study of functional movement, is that you know each each body is 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 different, and they can't necessarily get into certain positions that you're asking them to do based on the flexibility of their shoulder or their elbow, what all those things. And so you know, to me, I think the 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 radical change that's sort of been happening is that. What shooting practice should be or is, is allowing your body to teach you how to mm. make the shot, right? Yeah. You, have, you, you provide the environment and you provide sort of the, the uh, overall, you know, uh, notion of the, of the movement. And then, the, you know, then you can figure it out. So I still feel like we could probably get, you know, some sort of quirkiness. But you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, you're right. The more you think about the three-point shot specifically, especially from the NBA three-point shot, yeah. you don't see guys with, you know, no one's shooting like Bill Cartwright from out there. And I think yeah. that was the issue. I'm kind of curious because you talk about Alex English. You talk about Bernard King. Uh, you talk about yeah. Reggie Miller a little bit. Um, even a guy like Bob Love, who I think is the progenitor of what you mm. mentioned with um, – uh, with uh, uh, who did we just talk about? Anyway, the guy who Bob Love would hold the ball over his head like he was going to pass it, kind of, and then all of a sudden just mm. turn into a shot from there, uh, really quick release. And you can't shoot a long distance three point shot that high over your head. That's sort of what I'm thinking is the problem, right? Yeah, and that's you know goes back to you know someone like yeah, you know, it's hard, it's impossible to compare eras, but. Um, you know, you think about someone like Magic playing today, and by the end of his career, he had developed a nice, he had a decent percentage from the three-point land, but it was that still he had his little push, yeah. you know, almost set shot. And whether you know, in today's game, that'd be much harder to get off because you know, there's not the double teaming in the post. Um, Magic would still dominate in other ways, of course, but just the way the game has changed, where you know, you, like someone like Bird, his you know that form that's so recognizable, but kind of bringing it behind his head almost. Um, on the other hand, he was a great three-point shooter, but it's just interesting to think about, you know, especially as defenses improve. I think that's, you know, a big aspect in all of this, too. And there's also always that reaction to, you know, what the offensive player does to the defense. Um, and that's part of it, where you just you can't you can't do what you might have been able to do 15, 20 years ago, for better or worse. Um, but I think it's, it's just going to keep changing. And that's also, you know, anytime part of me is like, oh, I wish things were like they were back then. I catch myself and think, you know, that basketball's always been like that, and it's always going to be changing. Um, and so far, it's almost usually always changing for the better. Well, you know, having looked back across the history of the jump shot, um, I'm kind of curious. You know, I had a take that got, got ripped to shreds on Twitter maybe like last year where, you know, as we have all this footage, like you said, and all these different – we're actually understanding more about the actual functional movement of the body where kids mm. can now at 8 and 9 and 10 – you know, learn different patterns of movement that will enable them to make more jump shots. I'm convinced that we're going to have 10 Steph Currys in 10 years. You know, all the yeah. eight, nine-year-olds now, when they're 20, 21, they ha- having grown up in this. And I that that met so much resistance where people are telling me that he's a one-in-a-lifetime. We'll never see a guy like that again. But mm. what I, I think what I react to so strongly with him, and I think that people call me a, um, a Steph Curry stand, whatever you call them now, 
uh, is that here's a guy who doesn't particularly have um, amazing physical gifts. Yeah. Right? And in, in, or at least his physical gifts mirror, you know, hundreds of thousands of players, whereas Michael Jordan's, you know, there's only one Michael Jordan. So mm-hmm. I'm convinced you could find guys who are going to be able to dribble that way and learn how to yeah. dribble off the jump shot, off the, off the, off the bounce, just like him. And yet uh, I'm kind of curious. Do you think that I was crazy to say that? No, and I think the really interesting thing will be in, in 30 years when someone goes back and watches old clips like we do, one the thing that really annoys me is whenever someone puts an old clip on Twitter and someone replies, oh, God, those guys could never play today. You know, Look how slow they are. Look how they shoot. Those people don't realize that in 30 years, the players they love now are going to be undergoing the same scrutiny um, that those older guys you know, go through today. So in 30 years, there's going to be Player people that watch Steph Curry and be like, oh, you know, what was the big deal again? You know, right. why was he? Why were people going crazy for him? Because it'll, I think it will become something where, yeah, someone might not match his numbers, someone might, you know, not be as amazing, but there's going to be so many guys who are very similar that what he is doing today will lose some of his effectiveness, you know, in the future, which is unfortunate. And in 30 years, I'll be replying to those guys as well and saying. You know, Curry was amazing and for his time. Oh, um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I have, I have books right here from the 20s that complain about the players not practicing hard enough, not listening, <laughs> not being team players. I swear to God, they're from the 20s. And so it's like, yeah. you know, it's the same from there, too. It's like not much has changed with the game in reality with it. And I, and I just find that, yeah, like, and I have to imagine – you know, as we move forward into the future, the, the the evolution is going to be just farther out shooting. Would you imagine? Like, they're just going to keep shooting from 35 yeah. and 40 and maybe farther. Yeah, and I thought, you know, a few weeks ago when Steph, he, when he was kind of breaking out of a slump and there was that game, he pulled up just inside half court and it wasn't at the end of the clock or anything. He just launched one. And I, that was my thought then was like, oh, my gosh. And eventually that's going to kind of be the norm. Um and part of that also goes back to sometimes, you know, my thoughts on the three-pointer where sometimes I'm like, God, I wish, the, I wish there was a little bit more variety sometimes in shots. And as we go forward, that's just going to become, I think the three-pointer is even going to grow in influence. You know, it seems impossible because it's so powerful today, but it's just going to keep getting more and more. And part of me is like, you know, do, you, do I want to see just five guys shooting from 30 feet? And probably, yeah, but also, you know, as that happens, you do lose some things. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how the game evolves. But I think just the three-pointers, people have realized it's such an effective weapon. And as players improve, as players impersonate Steph, that next generation, it'll become a pretty standard shot. I, that's you know maybe a ridiculous thing, but I think it will become a standard shot where you will be seeing guys mm-hmm. pull up because it'll be the more effective shot at that time. For sure. I mean, it's funny. In my mind's eye, I think I have images of like those old footage of the 30s where guys would do that. They kind of get up to yeah. like just inside half court and they do a two-handed set shot real quick. Yeah. And so would. I feel like they were doing that. And I, by the way, back in like 1999, we, me and my, I, I was an assistant at the time, and my mentor and I had like discussed maybe we should teach a kid to shoot a 20 foot, uh, like a, a 40 foot two-handed set shot because no one's <laughs> going to guard him out there. And if he can make, we didn't even have a conception of like 40% was good even back then, you know. 
yeah. we figured he could make you know more than it was than it was worth like than the it made it worth it. Um, yeah. And we, we didn't have the guts to do it, and that's why it's so exciting for young players now who are going to become coaches now to see. Like I had always envisioned having an offense where threes are just raining down and you're spacing your yeah. but there was no precedent for it, and I didn't have yeah. the guts to like invent it myself. Yeah. So it's it's kind of exciting that you can have that now. Um, I'm you know you actually mentioned in the in the book um, the the uh, movie Amazing Grace and Chuck, which when I was growing up you know was a you know a kind of a seminal movie and you know it's weird because I have a very distinct memory of it. Uh, can we? I don't know. I don't want to ruin the movie. Uh, no, <laughs> but, I, mean, I think we can just say it starts Alex English, yes. um, and Jamie Lee Curtis, I believe, right? Um, um, yeah, maybe. But here's what I remember in the beginning. He plays for the Celtics. Nuclear War. Yeah, yep, for the Celtics. And it stars Nuclear War. Yeah. And so here's what I remember. And this is an insight into what the three-pointer stood for back then, which was in the in the movie there there's a game in the garden uh, unless i'm confusing it with another thing where they kidnap a Celtics player with Joe Pesci or Daniel Stern yeah that, that's Dan Aykroyd i think oh uh, yeah what movie is that i don't even know what that movie is but i think it's amazing grace and chuck where the crowd in the garden they're all chanting 3 3 Three and then they throw it to Alex English, who's playing this other guy, Amazing Grace, and he shoots a three and he nails it, and they all go, they they lose their shit. I mean, they yeah. it, all hell breaks loose. And I think what's indicative of that is that that's what the three pointer meant, right? Like even yeah. in the late '80s or early '90s, the three pointer was either because you talk about you know only when you were down by a lot or whatever. But yeah. what I remember more was when you were on a run and you you scored yeah. like five in a row or seven in a row, and you're about to knock a team out, and then bam, like John Paxson comes around a handoff, whatever, from Michael Jordan, and hits a three, and the crowd just loses their mind, and the other team yeah. has to call timeout. That was what I remember the three really being like that excitement from a long distance that we've completely become, I think, numb to. Is that sort of how we yeah. feel now? And, def- and I, I'm pretty sure it's in my book, a quote from Bird back, I don't know if it, it might have been just in the mid-80s when he was, you know, kind of at his peak. And he talked about how he, actually might have been in his autobiography, and he talked about how he liked to use a three-pointer. And that was his favorite time to do it was, you know, not necessarily when you're way behind, but more when he was about to kill a team and put them, you know, completely out of their misery. And especially, you know, whether it was at the home and the garden was rising, but he also loved to do it on the road. And just, you know, totally deflate that, you know, home crowd. And it was. It was kind of this, you know, rare thing that you broke out for special occasions. Um, and it became this sort of the ultimate weapon at the time where now it's, you know, just stand, it's the most basic shot in basketball almost at this point. Um, so it is watch. It's just it's really interesting whether watching old games and hearing the announcers talk about, you know, oh, my gosh, he's shooting a three pointer or reading the old you know newspaper accounts about you know, what coaches thought about it, what they thought it was going to do to the game. Um, in the book, I have an old quote from Mike Krzyzewski who said when college instituted it for good um, in 86-87, you know, saying we just had a year of, you know, no chaos. Why are we introducing chaos to the game now? Um, and then when the obviously his views evolved and after the book came out, um, you know, he wrote a little blurb for the book and I wrote him a quick letter and just said, you know, one of the credits to his coaching, I think, is how he did evolve, you know, with the shot and the sports. And he wrote and said, yeah, I, I absolutely hated the three-pointer when it came in, but I learned that in today's game, you better have it. So um, it's just fast that the three-pointer is one of the more fascinating things to me because I write about this game in 1945, the first college game that used it. 
and Howard Hobson, um, the old Oregon coach, who it was kind of his idea. And he thought it would, you know, open the game. You know, this is back in the 40s. Um, but one of the things he thought was that it would actually bring the set shot more back into prominence because these guys would be rewarded for shooting those 35 footers again. Um, so that was kind of an interesting oh. thing, just the way the three pointer has always, you know, ever since its institution has been controversial, um, even as it's become now, you know, such a part of the game. Well, you know, that same hate that they had for the three pointer coming in, and we even hear Popovich talk about it now to some degree. Yeah. It's the same hate they had for the jump shot itself, I think. Yeah. And, as, you know, when when, it, when guys started doing it, even like Hank Lucetti, who didn't really do a jump shot, he was sort of a one-footed yeah. runner, like what Steve Nash's runner he would shoot, yeah. just like Hank Lucetti, which, by the way, needs to come back. We uh, No one shoots that anymore. And as much as the sky hook isn't around, it's, I think it's even more applicable is to have that little runner off one foot. But yeah. Um, we had coaches who literally were vowing, like, you're never going to shoot that shot for me. You know, across the country, they had people doing that. And, mm. um, and that was what was fascinating because it also becomes an, uh, indicative of the times right around, you know, in the 40s with World War II where, you know, yeah. maybe they weren't such a, um, a culture of following the rules, right? Or something must yeah. have happened there because obviously we have the jump shot now and they were, they were directly violating their coaches' instructions, Right. Um, and so I, I wonder if you have any insights into sort of that evolution of how it took hold in the face of a lot of coaches saying, do not do it. Yeah. Um, there's a guy in the book I mentioned, he, he talks about, he's done a lot of research and he credits strangely enough, world war two, um, for helping it a little bit because you had these guys who were maybe scattered across the country who now would be in the army together, would play some ball together and would see, Oh, you have a jump shot or guys who, had never seen it, didn't shoot it, would see someone do it. And when, you know, after the war ended, they went back home and they started using it. And, you know, it seemed like kind of an odd theory. But if you look, you know, Kenny Sayers and Joe Folk served together, um, you know, and now here they were, you know, seeing each other play. So I think there's definitely some credence to that. And I just think as he got into the late 40s, early 50s, eventually I think coaches just had to, they could no longer ignore just how good these early jump shooters were. And the right. numbers they were putting up, you know, like Joel Folks, he was setting, you know, single game scoring records. You get Paul Arizon in the early 50s there, um, who had never really even played much high school ball and then becomes an All-American at Villanova, a great player in the NBA, and he's shooting a jumper. So I think eventually it just became where the coaches, you know, even though still Kenny Saylor's his first pro years, his coach, his first coach told him not to do it. Um, and then luckily he had a coach who encouraged him. And I think eventually it was just the progress was so obvious um, that to ignore it, these coaches, you know, would have been ignoring just the game's progression. But that doesn't mean they didn't fight it, and that's the media too. And one of the favorite things I found in the book was um, Jimmy Breslin, who, you know, just passed away. And he was a young sports writer in the mid-'50s, and he wrote this jump shot saying, the jump shot has ruined basketball. (laughs) Um, The reason being that all of a sudden now offense – you know, one guy could just dribble and shoot. He no longer had to pass it. You didn't have to do the give and go. Um, again, things you might hear today from people, you know, 60 years ago. So it was, that was something I didn't realize until I started researching the book was just how much resistance there was to the jump shot, whether it was writers, coaches, um, other players. Bob Cousy, when he retired in 63, gave a interview with the Associated Press and he said, the jump shot's been the worst thing in basketball the last 10 years. Um, and here's Kuzi, you know, this 
showman, this imaginative, creative genius. Even he was kind of leery of what the jump shot did for basketball. Um, so I think it's just a credit to those early players. And, and number one, their persistence, but also just their greatness. And that eventually people saw, you know, if a lot more players do this, we'll have more players capable of putting up numbers like those guys did. Yeah, I mean, for sure. You know, the, the, my, my negative reaction now to the game tends to some center around when they'll, they'll go back and forth missing like threes, two or three or four possessions in a row. It, it kind of, you know, you feel like you're watching a YMCA game or a pickup game. Yeah. Um, you know, but then again, if you had an offense that could create good three-point shooters, like three-point three shots, like if you could create 50 of those a game, then yeah, take 50 of them a game yeah. if they're inside out. And like that's the other thing that we're, we're missing is that as the analytics come in, people are saying, well, you know, the post-up is a very inefficient shot. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And A, it's mm. because the footwork is shitty for most of these post-up players, yeah. even at the NBA level. So a guy like, and I, I said this before in the podcast, but you probably have some people who haven't heard it. Uh, you know, Kevin McHale shot 54% from the field. And let's just say a, a small percentage of those are putbacks. For the most part, that's all post-up, right? So his yeah. points per possession is easily 1.1, 1.2 on his post-ups. And that would be, you know, the most efficient shot in today's game. Yeah. Um, and yet what we also notice is, is the best three-point percentage comes from a pass from the post. Mm. So what you have to be careful with, I think, with all the analytics that we're looking at now and we're trying to you know, argue that there's a three-point shot is really important, is that it's how you generate the three-point shots. And I almost feel like back in the day, they, they, they might have understood that better. They might have understood how to take, get, maybe not three-pointers, but outside jump shots better because of the patterns and of the way they operate in their offense. I mean, did you get a chance to watch a lot of the old footage and, and get a sense for that? Yeah, a little bit. You know, that's, that's the post-up, especially as you say that, you know, that's really interesting because the stereotypical image I have is those mid-90s rockets with, dumping it down to Akeem and him kicking out, you know, not only do you have the, you know, perfect footwork down low, but you have him, you know, throwing it out to the three point shooters. Um, but, you know, you, you watch a lot of those older games and, you know, sometimes it could be it, the pace sometimes would be so fast. Um, it could be a little herky jerky. But one thing I think was that I don't, maybe they were unburdened by analytics, but, or maybe it was just instinct or, you know, instinct slash coaching, but they would just kind of take – if it was a good shot, they took it. Um, and a lot of times it would be, you know, they come down, they take a 20-footer, where if today if a team comes down and takes a 20-footer, someone would be screaming that it's a low-efficient shot. And I think that that part kind of you know, annoys is the right word, but it just makes me wonder, you know, is – you talk about playing the game the right way, and today that's taking on this meaning of you have to do it a certain percentage way. And I think something's been lost where if you watch those older games – um, there was this flow and guys just, you know, whether it was just taking a shot that was available, the best shot available, if you will, whether it was a three or whether it was a post up or, you know, a, mid, a dreaded mid range shot, um, those teams still knew how to score. You know, it's not like scores were in the 50s in the 1970s or 80s. Um, so part of me kind of wishes that would come back a little bit today where it wasn't, I, I feel like it has become a little bit regimented. And a lot of the teams are starting to just look the same with everything they run. Um, so part of me kind of wishes for a little bit of that more free-flowing back in the day. 
free flowing, but they still knew what they were doing. Um, right. You know, that might sound contradictory, but. Well, no, I hear you. And also the globalization of the game and then the fact that we can all be interconnected with like footage and YouTube and all these things is it means, you know, back then they had different, very distinct styles based on the region of the of this country. Yeah. And we don't have that anymore, really. Although I would probably still argue that like some of those tough mid Midwest teams in the cold, like they're tougher physically and out here yeah. in L.A. they're not. Yep. Like I, I would oh, still argue yep. that to some degree. And I, but I also think that the game itself has become a lot less like tougher is what is sort of like the word people use. Um, but but as a result, there is this, a little bit of a unification of the game. It still is exciting for me um, to some degree. Th- those mid-90s Rockets, though, what frustrated the hell out of me on those teams were they would dump it down to Akeem, wait for a double team, and just stand around and then just kick it out and, and make maybe one pass and shoot it. Whereas yeah. at least now when you watch like like the Warriors, they're, they're not using the post up to score now, but they're at least cutting and moving. They're like, kind of recreating some of that old great movement. And I almost yeah. feel like that's what captured the imagination. When you watch those 30s, 40s, 50s games, and, the, and you can see the shot of the crowd, it's women, it's kids, it's mm-hmm. adults. It's like the, I, I almost feel like the interest level was it ran much more across the gamut maybe than it does now. Whereas, mm-hmm. A, the ball handling wasn't good enough, so you never knew what was going to happen, right? Like the ball squirted out all the time, and it, it was, there was an excitement there. But it was the movement of the players, I think, that yeah. really kind of captures at least my imagination – and that's the worry, I think, is that with the jump shot and with the way you can dribble off the dribble now, uh, you, you you run the risk of getting a little bit more stagnation. And certainly the bad NBA teams, if we're going to use them as an example, demonstrate that. And then it doesn't win for them. Yeah, and that's, you know, going back to those guys in the 50s, and that was one of their laments was you were losing some of that player movement that, you know, not only was it successful, but it was it was fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Um it's, you know, I always talk about like, the Knicks teams, you know, even before, the pre-70s Knicks teams in the 50s, the way they'd cut and move and pass. And now you have one guy come down, dribble and shoot. And it does, they're just visually, it's just not the same. Um, so I, I think that's definitely a, the problem being like what it's, you can lament it, but what can you really do about it? You right. can't force players, you know, to... And you can, you, you, can just, you can say that you're calling out Russell Westbrook. That's okay if you want to. Uh, because that's, that's your that's your that's your thing. <laughs> his dribble up into a post up and shot is uh, you know a thing of uh, of, of interest for me. Uh, let me ask you this as we start to wrap this up because you know the analytics. We, you mentioned that before how like it's all threes and layups now and no long twos. Uh, and, and I get it, and we actually kind of practiced that even like in the '80s, you know, right when they came in. We knew like you don't have your foot in the line, like that was a big one. At least get your foot all the way behind, yeah. and get the three. But yeah. um, but uh, there's just some weird correlation with the statistics guys uh, between free throw shooting and three point shooting. And apparently, on a macro level, there is a it's it, they they want to argue that it's extremely uh, close correlation of predicting how well they're going to shoot threes based on the free throw percentage. And I know practically that there doesn't seem to be a real big connection aside from, you know, maybe some sort of release consistency or something. What are your thoughts on that? You stumped me. Um, so <laughs> they're saying like, so if you're a great free throw shooter, you're going to be a great three-point shooter or it's more the mechanics. Well, if no, if from a purely from the- math standpoint, they're looking at it. If you shoot 85% from the line, then, then you're going to you're gonna be, I guess I can say most likely, but they obviously the stats guys want to say with certainty, but they'll say that that is like the best indicator for whether mm. or not they're going to be a good three-point shooter. And I just know that, you know, you're not guarded, you don't jump, uh, you have all the time to take in the world to shoot this thing. 
Um, I, I, practically, there isn't a lot of similarities between a, the live three-point shot and the free throw. Yeah, that, I mean, I would agree with you. So then part of me is thinking, oh, well, now I'm going to sound dumb because the numbers guys will say you're an idiot. But everything you just said is exactly the same. I mean, you you have your you go through your routine, you know, whether it's eight seconds or whatever, compared to the three pointer where it's you know instantaneous. Um, I guess if you look, you know, when you think about it, is it it's kind of the chicken or the egg? You know, guys like Curry, Corver, Ray Allen, Reggie Miller, they were also amongst the best free throw shooters in NBA history and also great three point shooters. But I guess those top of the line guys, I, I'd almost want to cut them out and look more at, you know, the rest of the world and see um, what the correlation there is because, um, you know, I don't know if you, if you have a big guy who is a great free throw shooter, doesn't always happen, but it does. Mm-hmm. Um, if they, if they're a great, you know, three point shooter. So I, that's a really interesting theory. I, you know, I kind of want to dig into it and see, you know, what the, yeah. what the difference is. I, I think they're looking just... at it the wrong way. And I think because of what, how you're describing it, I feel like uh, it, there's almost like maybe there's an absence of data, so that, which is the, they're using to prove their point as opposed to the other way around, mm-hmm. like the big guys, for instance, uh, could, could affect that. Uh, and also, I, all, all I know is there's got to be uh, uh, enough people that would convince me that it doesn't hold true, that, that maybe shoot – poorly from the free throw line, but also shoot well from the three and vice versa. I mean, uh, there's, there's gotta be enough of those guys that would indicate that the correlation isn't as well, strong, but you know, when they, it wasn't them, someone like, you know, Nick, you might know it's better, his numbers better, but I think of Nick Anderson by the end of his career, you know, after the infamous missed free throws, right. um, Philando, he was a, he was an awful free throw shooter, but I feel like, and again, I might, I should probably look this up first, but I feel like his three point shooting was fairly consistent. It's not like that fell off a cliff. Um, so there's an instance where someone, you know, maybe not good because the free throw, I think, is much more it become much more a mental game. Mm-hmm. You know, you're kind of you're alone there. I, I feel like that's where the three pointer is just, you know, it's trained into you um, where at the same time you can turn. I think someone who maybe isn't a great three point shooter, you, you know, the, the late Tom Amberry probably could have taken someone and turned them into an amazing free throw shooter. So it does seem like two totally in a way, two totally different skills. The end result, obviously, you know, the shooting being the same, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a fascinating theory. Although the mental aspect you just described on the free throw, I think, also applies to three pointing, three shooting as well. Like, and we saw, you know, Steph was off, and it could very well be either you be get in your head, yeah. you know, it could be in the head, it could be physical. Because here's the thing I'm, I'm I'm wondering about is that we you know, now that we've gotten enough years to look back in a macro sense of like the three point shot and where we're going and how it's affected. Um, I'm kind of wondering now, and you know, this is it's still sort of a theory that, you know, maybe one season isn't long enough to look at a shooter. And like a guy like Danny Green, who, by the way, his mechanics are terrible, you know, for the most part, right? He, I hate the way he shoots it, but he was elite for several years. Then he had a down year, like the whole year wasn't great. Yeah. And or he's prone to like big stretches where he's not good. And I almost feel like that could apply to the whole team where we can see these sort of rolling uh, variability here that, you know, you, you might actually go on a downspin as a team together. Like, like the Houston Rockets are a good example, I feel like, where last year they really suffered and the coach mm-hmm. got fired, the whole thing. And the mental aspect could easily be that, you know, these guys like Corey Brewer who were not or are not good shooters and their form is not good, but they were able to knock down shots it's for, from some of that time. 
when they go into a slump, now all of a sudden Harden's like, well, geez, I got to start making more of these shots because they're yeah. not shooting. And now he's forcing it and pressing it. Now he's missing. And then the other guys are pressing. And now, but the pressure is to keep shooting the threes. I think that there's a real interesting issue there where we could see, you know, two or three years of slump and then mm. two or three years of rise. And that also could be an, an, a, maybe an argument against what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, again, with the three-pointer, not to dwell on it, but a, a quote from that I came across for the book from Steve Kerr, who obviously, you know, believes strong in the three-pointer. But in the it was after 2000, it was like 2003, four. he gave a quote to Sports Illustrated, which it wrote this story about how at the time NBA teams were struggling to shoot threes. And he said just from a, a spectator standpoint, I know it's, you know, you talk about 50% twos, you know, 33% threes, but that's a lot more misses that fans have to watch when teams are shooting a lot more threes. And just from a fan standpoint, it it makes it not in a very interesting game. And like you said, sometimes when it's just back and forth, miss after miss. um, And Zach Lowe wrote a few years ago that the NBA was looking at um, the number of three pointers being taken. And that was like three or four years ago. And I don't think anything more came of it. Um, So to me, it's just, it's interesting to see, you know, no matter what the numbers say, there's still, I think basketball is, still a visual sport as far as you know what we enjoy seeing and just also you know what is good basketball i think those two things can still come together sure and i and i also feel like it's all anecdotal and just from my watching it but it felt like that that scene i described to you in the chicago stadium when they go on a bit of a run and then you know hodges would hit a three and the crowd would just Mm -hmm. go nuts and the team would call timeout i don't know but it feels like there's less of that and maybe because of the jump shot and because of the three the other teams aren't always in a run where they're going to they're going to go on an eight zero run or nine. I'm sure it's a I'm sure it's a fallacy. I'm sure they still do it, but mm. I wonder if you know if, if there is a balancing effect. And I think that's the other thing that we've looked at and we haven't gotten there yet as far as the evolution of the, the way we play the game is that you know we are still in the, in the realm of if you are less talented or you're less athletic than the other team, and usually it's like the high school level or whatever. The conventional mm-hmm. wisdom is to slow it down, limit possessions, because you don't want to have as many as less possessions as possible. When in reality, all that does is make you meek and make you unconfident and you're, and you're yeah. scared, and that plays right into their hands. So what gets you even, what might level the playing field, is spreading it out, actually like pushing the ball and trying to get threes, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and if you're a less talented team that maybe has some shooters, you might be able to stay in the game or win, whereas the, the slowing it down just delays the blowout until the third quarter. Um, and so that's what I'm thinking we're also fighting as well as this notion of using the three-point shot, especially the lower levels, uh, as more of, a, of a, pl- a playing field leveler. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was a, there's a team in my home state of Minnesota this past year. The Wall Street Journal actually did a story on them because the coach had taken this dramatic philosophy change, and he wanted his team basically only shooting three-pointers. And they, they weren't you know, a powerful team. They were a small town. And they had forged, you know, maybe like a 500 record, but that was better than what they had ever been in the past. And that was his argument. Are you in that Dave? Every, every week. To win this, this shot, you know, we don't have the players, but this shot, this weapon, kind of levels that playing field. Um, and like I said, especially at the lower levels, where whether it's high school or college, um, that probably should be something that team should be doing. Uh, right, right. And, and then it's the one thing you can practice and, you know, you can get good at. You could be uh, not talented at athletically or you could have limits to your game, but you can get the jump shot to go in. And you can even under yeah. pressure, 
Uh, and that's that's the leveling thing. So I'm anxious to see how we go as we go forward, if we're going to continue to see. And the other thing is not only do we have a level, uh, a more of a level playing field, perhaps, but we also want to have a lot more wild swings. A 20 point lead is never is not going to be safe. Right. Anymore. I think that's the other issue. Well, that, you know, I, I would as you say that. And last night I was talking to my dad about the Timberwolves blowing 15 point leads throughout this season. And I wonder if anyone's done any studies of if the past 10 years, if it is easier to come back, you know, we'll take the NBA from double digit deficits, 15, 20, because of the three pointer, you know, again, anecdotally, it seems like right. teams and, you know, they always say the NBA, obviously games never over, but it seems like in today's game, especially those leads are almost meaningless. Um, obviously for the better teams, they do hold on to them, but it, it would be interesting to see if, if that would, you know, prove if the numbers would show that it's true that today's game, the three pointer has made it such a different thing where 10 points, 15 points is basically meaningless. I, I, yeah, I agree. And I think the, the study would have to be something like look at the typical 20 point lead in uh, people that come back and what are the percentage of field goals that are threes compared to yeah. like what it was back then. That would probably give you some indication. And, you know, it just seems that way. Well, as we wrap up, I was kind of curious, like, who was your favorite interview? What was your favorite subject in this book, uh, you know, Rise and Fire, the book where you, where you, you know, breaking down the history of the jump shot? Who was your favorite interview? Oh, man. I mean, just from from a history standpoint, having you know, a chance, as far as a big name, talking to Jerry West was obviously a thrill, um, just because one of the best ever. And just, you know, obviously he's talked a lot about a lot, a lot of different things, but having a chance to talk about this very specific thing, and how he became a great shooter and his beliefs on the jump shot was a real thrill. Um, but then some of the lesser known players, I think were, you know, probably some of the most enjoyable and, um, a guy named Jimmy rail, uh, Indiana Hoosiers legend in the early sixties, who was Mr. Basketball in that state in the late fifties. And still to this day, you know, that's 60 years ago. I would talk to people in Indiana if they were around then, or they heard from their fathers and they would talk about Jimmy rails, jump shot. Um, Obviously, Indiana basketball state, but that to me was just fascinating that people would still be talking about one guy's jumper. Um, so having the chance to talk to him in Kokomo, Indiana, and him, you know, remembering lighting up Bobby Knight um, with Ohio State, you know, things like that. Um, those kind of players really stand out for me. Um, I, I got to talk to the first woman who was ever drafted in the NBA. Um, Denise Long was her name, and she was this legend in Iowa girls basketball in the '60s back when they played six on six. Mm-hmm. Um, so having the chance to talk to her and just hear how basketball changed her life. You know, she lived in this town of 200 people, but all she would just go to the park every day and shoot for eight, nine hours. Um, and just how basketball and the jump shot literally changed her life and made her a national name for a brief time in the sixties when the Warriors took her. Um, so those types of interviews really stand out with, you know, some of those players that today's fans might not be as familiar with, um, but when you talk to them, you just hear these stories about, you know, what the jump shot and what basketball really, how it changed their life. Um, those are the ones that really stand out for me. Cool. Well, uh, again, a, a really great book. I, I just digested this as much as quickly as I could to uh, absorb it. And I think it also helps. It helps your jump shot. It, the more you can kind of study it, understand the different things, uh, like, you know, the more you might be out there and you're like figuring things, some things out. I mean, the funny thing on Twitter for me is I'll talk about the hop. And we, we didn't even get into the hop and the turn. Yeah. Uh, the, the one thing I, I will say about Jerry West when I, when I was talking to him about shooting was, 
I was really nervous that he was going to say, oh, you have to have 10 toes to the rim and be completely square. And you know what? Mm -hmm. He knew that he turned, and he knew that you needed to have a bit of a turn for the alignment. I was like, oh, thank God, because I'm assuming he had that same conversation with you. Yeah, and that I think the main, the image that I have anyway when you picture old videos of him is really going off the dribble, and he he definitely wasn't squared up. So yeah. you know, it, it, like you said, it's nice that he, you know, because a lot of things a lot of players don't always know how to describe what they did, and might say they're doing something that they weren't doing. So I think I think West is not surprisingly because he's you know obviously in some ways is a tortured thinker, but he thinks about the game deeply, including his own game, and he definitely has an awareness of how he played. Right, and he doesn't pull any vocabulary to explain uh, how he no. feels uh, as well, uh, you know, blue or not. Uh, it's, so it, it's kind of a, it's a refreshing, but also <laughs> if, you're, if you are, uh, if you don't like bad language, you have a trouble talking with Jerry West. Now, yeah. um, but you know, the in-air turn, by the way, is, is the newest, latest thing, because I know you, you do get into it a little bit in talking about uh, you know the hop and the dip and the and the uh, sway mm. and uh, and the turn, but uh, that's the latest thing. Like kind of like uh, the kid in Sixth Sense who sees only dead people. I can't not see the in air turn now for almost every jump shooter that I see. Like there's some rotation in there, and uh, and that's my latest thing with uh, with what we're looking at. And also the eyes, where the eyes go on the release. Mm. Did you come up with anything that was a, a through line from a lot of these guys or what they where they look at when they release? I, it was, different guys would have different things, and you know I think that's another thing. I, I wonder if as we get more knowledge, if it will become something. Do you think guys are they following the ball more? Is that something? My, my take on, it, and I got into it with some of these shot guys on on who are who who again think that I'm an, a horrible person and should never be talking about it. But uh, the my response to the where the eyes go now, obviously when you're shooting it and you're aiming, you're on the rim. But on the release, as it's coming out of your hand, the the list of players that will then follow the ball with their eyes is of great shooters. That list is yeah. very long and very distinguished. And yeah. if you want to ignore that, then that's at your own peril. But And I know I was a strict laser focus on that rim. J, like J.J. Redick is on that rim the whole time. And I, mm. it's hard for me to even imagine. That said, I've gone out there and started shooting and following the ball. And I got a. It's a different shot completely. It is. <laughs> now the other the the idiot the idiot, whoever they are want to argue that it's it is not the same. Like once it's out of your hand, you could you could take a dump on the ground. Like it doesn't matter what you do once it's out of your hand. It's 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 the same shot. I argue that it's not, and I kind of like it now. I kind of like following the ball. It's very weird, and I almost feel like it's better that way. So. Uh, and by the way, if Steph Curry is doing things we've never seen done before, right, on a volume level, making shots, and mm. he follows the ball, which he does, well then, why wouldn't we try that? Why wouldn't we yeah. use that maybe as a possible thing? But then you talk about Dirk, Nash, Kerr, uh, you know, Dale Ellis, every single one of them. Mm. Like it, that list, you know, it's hard to find guys that actually just follow the, the only look at the rim. Bird, uh, Michael, they all follow the ball. Kobe, and so it's like, um, you know. If you're going to come at me and dismiss that, then there's there's something wrong, right? Yeah. And now one guy I remember in particular, uh, Bob McAdoo, obviously a great shooter, and he talked about, you know, he looked at the rim. But now I'm kind of interested. I'd, I would like to, because there are some clips of Bob, and go back and see if you can see his eyes. You know, maybe he wasn't, maybe that's what he was focusing on, you know, as he was going up for it. But it'd be fun. You know, I might have to go back and see if actually his eyes were following the ball once he released it because 
you know, as we said, guys don't always know exactly what they're doing. Right. And, and the best, I think one of the best uh, outcroppings of having high definition footage is the jump shot. <laughs> Right, like I know HD is great for watching movies, or whatever. But we finally now have 60 frames per second slow mo HD, and you can really yeah. look at this frame by frame because that's when I really started seeing, you know, in the finals a couple of years ago when you saw Steph shoot these, and he's rotating in the air. And I, I that's the one thing I couldn't mm -hmm. get Jerry West to see. We were watching guys shoot at the practice, and I'm like, look, see how his right foot ends up so far in front of his left when he lands when it wasn't that way mm -hmm. when he started. The only explanation is that he's rotating in the air. He he couldn't quite see that, but yeah. but other than that, I mean, you know. And by the way, let's get let's let's wrap our, our let's let's uh, seal in our practice with the notion that I'm not going to outwardly espouse rotating in the air. I'm not going to teach someone to do that, right? But mm -hmm. what I'm not going to do is force them not to rotate in the air and yeah. get so tense with their body to try and stop the natural motion of you know what you know that, that would happen. Same with like the dip. I don't really teach the dip. But I'm not going to be the coach who's got a hand underneath the ball who's like going to force you not to bring it down on the cat. Like those are the things. Yeah. And so that's what I always used to say. I say um, bad coaching is infinitely worse than no mm -hmm. coaching. Yeah, and that's as you were saying that I was thinking, you know, whether it's it's the eyes that you, the thing you would hope is maybe a coach won't teach that, but if he sees one of his players doing it, you hope he doesn't force him to change because not. And if he's been a good shooter. Now all of a sudden, you know, you're messing with them. So right. I, I think you're exactly right on that. Where it's a fine line that coaches have to have there because at the same time they they can help someone and you know turn someone into a good shooter. But if if they mess with too many things with someone who already has everything in place, uh, they can do more damage. Yeah, and so it's like yeah, the kid is struggling. You know, there's there's a lot of little tricks in your bag. And by the way, when yeah. you when you go play tennis and you go work out with a tennis pro. Like they have that checklist. There's probably like only the 20 different things, and they're probably all Connors did this, McEnroe did this, Sam, whatever. And so they tick them all off, and then you can find one that fits. Well, with eyes on the ball or eyes on the rim is certainly should be one of those things. But again, mm -hmm. the dogma of the of the fundamentals prohibits that sometimes, and it's really frustrating. So I keep that one in my back pocket. If a kid is really struggling and other things mm -hmm. aren't working, I'll be like, well, let's try this and see if it works. And I have my <laughs> theories about why the following the ball works. I feel like Following the ball with your eyes keeps you more in tune with what your body is doing, your, your hip, your elbow, whatever. Whereas when you cast your focus on a thing that's, that's up to 35, 40 feet away, because remember, it's also 10 feet in the air and mm -hmm. behind the three-point line, let's say, um, you're, you're now not mindful. You're not sort of in the moment, right? You're sort of everything is away from you and far away in a way that you're not as aware. Now, it's complete psychobabble, whatever, but I have had some of these sports psychologist guys respond to what I'm saying. And they're like, yeah, that makes sense, that bringing the ball and bringing your eyes to the shot – that's what happens to me. I'm like, oh, there's my hip, there's my elbow, there's my wrist. Yeah. I just, I'm more aware of it. And I think that's the key to shooting a jump shot. Well, and going back to when I said earlier, when I talked to people and then go out and play and I'd have their ideas in my head. Um, and one of the things I tried for a few weeks was, because I, I don't follow the ball. Um, so when I started doing it, I felt like I wasn't shooting as well just because I wasn't used to it. But one thing I definitely noticed is my normal shot like that I've had forever is more of a flat jump shot. And as I would follow the ball, I definitely noticed that I would start getting more arc on it because I could see, oh, I need it. It, it does look flat. I can see that myself now, not just on video. Um, so I would, I, it did kind of, if I would have kept at it, and obviously if I was 15 years old and could put it into my game, I think it would have helped me because I would have gotten a little more arc on it because I am watching it and knowing more what, what it is that I'm doing as I shoot. 
Right. Absolutely. And I, I remember I'm a little bit older than you. But there was really no resources. We didn't have shooting coaches. No one mm-hmm. knew anything about the hop or the one, two at all. Like as far I mean, every once in a while you run into someone who like in the seventies was teaching and understood it, but it was so not widespread. Uh, it, you know, it, it was very generic uh, with a lot, a lot of information there for the jump shot. So again, I think this is all leading us to a level of, uh, we, you know, we're going to see more shooters. Um, mm. and, and, and when you, the more shooters you have, you know, that, 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 that is fraught with things where it may be like, there's less driving, right. There's less yeah. of whatever, but you can only hope that the curries of the world are going to keep inspiring because they've me- melded it together. They've melded the dribbling, uh, exhibitions with the shooting. By the way, the one thing I also noticed is that, you know, the left hand pickup off a dribble is better than the right hand pickup for a jump shot. Have you, did you ever d- discover that? Yeah, definitely. And that's, again, something that I, I guess that's what I knew instinctively, but until I started writing this and thinking about myself, I was like, oh yeah, and then you watch people. And then, true story, this past Wednesday at my Old Man Hoops League, um, we had this new guy play, and he's a pretty good player, but he was more of a role player, and he liked to set screens. And at the end of the night, he came up to me and said, do you prefer if I set a screen where you can dribble to your left and shoot the three? even though I'm a right-handed player. And I was like, yeah, definitely. And he was surprised. And he was like, oh, I, you know, I thought you want to go right. And I was like, no, I that's I go, you pick that up very well that I want to shoot while picking it up. And it's just, to me, it seems like such a, you know, just more natural thing. And as I started, you know, thinking about that more, now when I watch guys, I sort of admire those players. You know, I think Kobe was someone who he could go to the right and pull up for that pull-up jumper really effectively. So now I really admire those guys who kind of, it's their dominant hand as far as driving, but when it comes to the going that way, so I, now watching the game, I, I really admire those guys who can do it, you know, going both ways. Oh yeah, well, I mean, there's a big reason for that. When you're going to your right, your your uh, and your righty, your hip and your elbow are not in line. You have to rotate in the air to get there when you're pulling mm-hmm. up off a dribble. Whereas going to your left, your hip is already in line with the basket. And so the funny thing is we used to say you have to work on your left hand if you're a righty, let's say. Mm-hmm. Because we yeah. thought, well, because you have to be able to drive both ways. It's no, it's because you have to be able to pull up the better, easier way to make it is going to your left. And we've seen the data now for years and years and years that the left side for righties is a much better, is a higher percentage shot, you know, for mm. all those reasons that we're talking about. And also, yeah, coming off of pin downs, on the right side of the floor, again, now you, you know that's yeah. when your hip is aligned, and that's when the hop and all that stuff can kind of come into play because you can get it off quicker. But um, you know, so if I were a coach, and you know, we're starting to now realize the footwork. So now we're looking at all right. If you want to, like Ray Allen, for instance, I interviewed him and I said, "Do you like the mm. like the one two, like the hop?" Because he's he's kind of both, but he likes the hop a lot. And I, mm. he didn't seem to have an idea of like what certain situations he likes to hop versus one two. And he said it, it said it's situational, but I don't think he really knew, um, you know, concrete when. I know when. Yeah. When he's coming off the pin down to his left, he hops. And when he goes off yeah. the other side, he's the one, too. So that then translates into training where I'm like, okay, this is what we've seen that your body naturally does. We're not going to waste time in the offseason one-twoing a shot when you're going to your left because you don't do mm-hmm. that. It's not what you like to do. And I think that's the next integration and that what we're studying now as far as like, which hand you're picking up from, which direction the pass is coming from, all those different things. Uh, that's what the secret sauce is going to make these shooters better, certainly at like the NBA level and maybe D1. Yeah, and it's, it's like you said, the, the future is just fraught with you know, possibilities because you, it, it's hard to imagine that someday, you know, in 20, 30 years, we'll be looking at someone who, you know, today it's hard to imagine anyone looking or shooting better than, you know, obviously Steph, but Clay Thompson just comes to my mind. Yeah. You know, just the way he shoots and when he gets hot, it's just there's nothing like it. But in 20, 30 years, you know, there might the next 
the next evolution of Clay and what that will look like is kind of amazing <laughs> to think about. Yeah, it'll be he'll be like seven two, and you know, and play like Curry. I mean, that's the way they're going to get taller and more skilled, and and then yeah. you can't defend it. Uh, and back in the '80s, we used to think they were so good offensively then that all you can kind of do is maybe get a hand up and hope he missed. Yeah. Well, guess what? Uh, you know, and that's the other thing is we've redefined what an open shot is, right? Like when I was growing up, the shots are taken that are like, oh, those are open shots. You'd never take those. You'd get on yeah. you'd be the bench, you know, before the ball hit the rim. Um, yeah. And so that's and that's exciting too because I guess it's empowered people. It also, again, to get back to the to the uh, the notion of our society, you know, the society mirrors the way we play to some degree. And I feel like as we've evolved in a society, we've kind of evolved our our mindset to sports and basketball is a good microcosm of that. And we've had that from Brown versus Board of Education right all the way through till now. So um, anyhow, well, listen, this is a great breakdown, a great podcast, great information. Probably going to be a two-parter at this point, the way we did this, because there's so much to do. But uh, Sean, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Everybody, you have to check out Rise and Fire, uh, the origins, science, and evolution of the jump shot and how it transformed basketball forever, because it certainly has fantastic quotes, fantastic. I mean, I guess what you're doing, you're just taking a journey every chapter through another part of history, another part of the country, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's something as I did the research um, and hopefully the book proves this out is that, you know, obviously I have these little detours and, and write about some of the great shooters, but as you go through each decade, really of basketball, I was able to kind of see how the jump shot had such a big influence on the game at the time and just how also how it evolved, whether it was the 50s when it first really started becoming more prevalent into the 70s where you kind of had this first generation of players who grew up shooting it and you have these outrageous scoring numbers um, into today with a three-pointer, of course. So I think that's a fun thing about the book is that as you tour basketball history, you really see how the jump shot at every stop affected it. Absolutely. Well, uh, again, thanks for coming on the show and sharing this with us. And make sure you check out the book and get it wherever you can across the Internet or in real life uh, uh, in your hands. And uh, don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Sean? I'm definitely in, Nick. <laughs>